can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. Lord willing, we will be finishing chapter 18 together today. Which means we have eight verses that we're going to try to traverse together and exposit. And so, I'll ask you at this time to stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's Word. And we'll read John chapter 18 verses 33 through 40. Beginning in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release you to the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man. But Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me to the Lord in prayer. <coughs> Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time you've given us to look into your word. God, we praise you. Lord, I ask that you would stir us in our hearts and minds and souls to see Christ the King, to grow in our understanding of the nature of your kingdom, that we might see it. Father, I pray that you would grow and continue advancing your kingdom, that those who are lost still yet among us would be saved, that those listening abroad would hear the truth for the first time and that every Christian would have their heart kindled and warmed and encouraged by the truth of these words. Father, I ask that you would guard me from misspeaking. Lord, even as potentially controversial subjects are raised, I pray that opinions would hurry away and that only the truth would remain, that your word would be our guide. And I ask this in Jesus name. Amen. The title of this sermon is The Kingdom of God. And if you're like me, if you heard that prayer, the idea of a potential controversial subject, your ears perked up. Those are the things that interest us, aren't they? When we hear things that are a controversial subject, you think, well, what's the controversy all about? That's something curious to us. Well, let me say this at the beginning. I want to get this said so that we can focus on the Scriptures before us. 
There are going to be implications in our thoughts today concerning eschatology, the study of end times or the eschaton. But that's not our focus because that's not really Jesus' focus. I say there are implications, and regardless of whatever conclusion that you come to as to how things are going to turn out in the end, how things are going to wrap up a much debated subject, regardless of what you think is going to happen, let the elements, the principles of truth concerning what is the substance of the kingdom of God be fixed in your heart. Regardless of what eschatological position you may individually have, I'm challenging you to see the focus of the eschaton is the king himself. Period. Jesus Christ is the focus. And any other thing that tempts you to focus your attention on it other than him, I'm suggesting to you is imbalanced. Regardless of what system you align with. With that said, that brief bit of introduction, look with me beginning at verse 33. This is the point we see where Jesus is beginning to be tried by Pontius Pilate. You'll recall last week we saw that Pilate was interacting with the Jews who handed Jesus over. And we saw all the different ways that everyone was trying to justify themselves, to acquit themselves of their own guilt. And here we see Pilate continuing that same thing somewhat. But now his attention is no longer on the Jews who brought Jesus to him, but his attention is on Jesus himself for the most part of this text. So we see in verse 33, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is there a more important question than this? Is Jesus the king? That's what Pilate asks him. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, Pilate, I believe, is somewhat mockingly asking him. As a matter of fact, they're going to go on whenever Jesus is crucified to put on the the sign that they hang up there with Jesus. Jesus, king of the Jews. They weren't honoring him when they said that they're mocking him. And in a like way here, Pilate is seen mocking Jesus. But even though Pilate's mocking him when he asks him, are you king of the Jews? I believe it would be good and right for us all to sit under this question with some conviction and clarity. Now, we considered last week, this demonstrates for us how Pilate was without excuse. You remember, I told you last week that Pilate was playing the ignorance card. He was looking for a Passover of ignorance, prideful ignorance. He pretended not to know. Well, here Jesus, he asked Jesus, are you king of the Jews? So he knew something about Jesus. He knew something about what was being said about Jesus. And consider this in light of that placard, that sign that was with him on the cross, King of the Jews, something that was pointed out to me some time ago. The thief on the cross beside Jesus, presumably he was a Jew, had grown up hearing about a Messiah who was going to come. And he's mocking Jesus with the other thief. And something that's interesting is he would have been able to likely see, potentially see the sign that said King of the Jews. And it's interesting that perhaps it is that God was pleased to use that scripture for that expression is indeed scripture to use the scripture king of the Jews and saving that man. Isn't that interesting how God uses his word? But here the question comes to us today. The message comes to us, though it may have been inadvertent scripture at that time, Jesus, king of the Jews. What about yourself today? Do you see Jesus as your king? You may perhaps have some verbal commitment to Jesus as a Savior. Or you might profess to have a relationship with Jesus of some kind. The question is, 
Is he your king? Is Jesus your king? Or are you more inclined to think of Jesus in the way that Pilate did? Is the title that Jesus bears king something to be mocked or ignored as irrelevant? That's what Pilate's doing. Well, how does the Lord Jesus Christ answer this question from Pilate? Pilate says, are you in fact king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Jesus responds to this mocking question by immediately putting Pilate himself in the hot seat. And that would be initially what response I would give to you. That if you're not seeing Jesus as king, maybe you've heard other people profess faith in Jesus or you hear songs sung about Jesus, our king. And maybe to you, you think, well, that's all fine and well. But the question is, what is he to you? Jesus asked Pilate, is this something that you've come up with? Are you seeing me? Are you wanting to know Pilate? Are you really wanting to know Pilate? Are you just asking because somebody else told it to you? Do you realize that those types of criticisms of Jesus are a demonstration of our own guilt? Pilate is sitting in judgment over Jesus and Jesus isn't the one on trial here. Do you follow that? Oh, Pilate, sure, Pilate thinks that Jesus is on trial, but it's Pilate who's on trial. Jesus says, do you ask this of your own accord or did others say this to you about me? (coughs) Realize this. The king, Jesus, the king of the universe is sitting over you and I examining our every thought and our every word. And men may cleverly imagine that they're judging Jesus. They're going to judge whether he's trustworthy or not. But they don't realize that they themselves are the ones under examination. And I wonder, what do you think about Jesus Christ here today? When you hear about Jesus, when you hear the things Jesus said, when you hear the things that Jesus said are sinful and wrong, are you prepared to come in here and say, well, I'm not sure if what Jesus said is trustworthy. Is what he said really good? Does it apply to me? My initial charge to you would be to realize that you and I are in no position to sit in judgment of or criticize Jesus in any way. Jesus turns Pilate's mocking question into a personal examination of Pilate. Now, I believe there are plenty of people today who are prepared to raise the same type of mocking questions about Jesus. For example, was he really born of a a virgin? Is it really true that Jesus never sinned? Did he really address, did Jesus actually address the subject of homosexuality or sexual sin? Was Jesus actually God? Is he really sovereign over all things? Did he really rise from the dead? These are the questions that people criticize, challenge, and oppose about Jesus. And so my question to you is, does your profession of faith in Jesus Christ depend on the testimony of what you've heard someone else say? Or do you know him for yourself? Jesus asked Pilate, do you say it of your own accord? Is this your own thinking, your own question? We all have to personally and individually be examined in this way. And how does he answer? Verse 35, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation, the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? So rather than facing Jesus' question honestly, what we see Pilate doing is trying to take the conversation back into the realm of generalities. Pilate speaking generally, Jesus applies it individually, personally, to Pilate himself. Is this something you want to know? Or is this just some general statement that's been given to you to ask? 
He seeks to escape his own guilt once again by imagining that Jesus' kingship doesn't affect him since he's of a different nation. You know, there are people who think that today. I one time was out on the street evangelizing, witnessing, holding up a sign. My sign, I believe, said atheism is a temporary condition. The point being that when you die, you're going to no longer be an atheist because you're going to know that God is even as you suffer under his judgment. But here's the point. I was holding this sign and somebody stops their car on a street corner down in Texas and they roll their window down. And they say, I don't even believe in God. I said, well, it doesn't matter if you believe in God or not. Saying I don't believe in God does not excuse you and it will not deliver you from his judgment. And here Pilate is imagining that because I'm not in your kingdom, somehow or another, your authority, your rule doesn't affect me at all. Am I a Jew? Pilate redirects the focus of this trial off of himself and back on to Jesus. And he asked Jesus, what have you done that is so bad that your own people want to kill you? Isn't it interesting to notice how common this type of thinking is today? Pilate wants to know if these chief priests, these scribes, these Pharisees, if they want to kill you, what could you possibly have done to so stir them up? These are somewhat peaceful people, we thought. How is it that they're coming to kill you? And it's interesting to notice that we ourselves as well, we give too much credit to humanity when we assume that it is only the heinous acts of evil that will cause people to hate us. That's essentially what Pilate's saying here. You must have done something really, really bad if they want to kill you. What is it that Jesus had done? The cause for the Jews' hatred of Jesus was that he found them to be guilty. He had stripped of them their self-righteousness. Jesus had pronounced, as we heard last week from Matthew 23, woe upon them and called them to repent. And he had named himself as an authority over them. Jesus had proclaimed that their little kingdoms, their little kingdoms that they were seeking to rule over were nothing but sandcastles. And my question is, in light of this, how is it that Jesus responds to Pilate's question here? Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? What does Jesus say is the cause for all this hatred and opposition of the Jews? Why is it essentially that the Jews hated Jesus? Why is it essentially that people today are not in Christ? They're not converted. Why is it? I told you last week that nothing, nothing so hinders a person from being converted, from being saved, as their own pride. Well, notice how this pride element is related in verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So in this one answer, have you thought about that? We've probably often quoted or heard the statement, Jesus saying, my kingdom is not of this world. But have you realized that's an answer to a question? Have you realized that Pilate says, what have you done that's caused these people to hate you so much? Jesus brings up this subject of a kingdom. He's answering the Jews, the Pharisees. They had a kingdom in mind, you know. They had a kingdom they were trying to build. They had a kingdom they were interested in. And it was carnal and it was temporal. It was of this world. Jesus says, the kingdom I'm about, the one I'm interested in, it's not the same as those Pharisees and Jews that are putting me over to death. Their eyes are on a different prize. 
Jesus, in giving this answer, reveals to us part of the reason the Jews hated him. But he also confronts Pilate's own misunderstanding of the subject. You see, the Jews hated Jesus, as I'm telling you, because they had a completely different understanding of the kingdom of God than the one he came proclaiming. And not only the chief priests and religious leaders, but even Jesus' own disciples, even John the Baptist. Jesus said there's no one been ever born of a woman greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was mistaken. He was wrong. He had some wrong ideas about what the kingdom of God actually was. They all seem, every one of them, Pilate included, seemed to have expected him to come with physical might, physical power, to lay waste to the Romans and anyone else that opposed them. You realize that's why the Pharisees were so afraid of Jesus getting a reputation as the Messiah. Because they thought the Messiah is going to come and lay waste to Rome. And they didn't want Rome hearing about that. Because if Rome hears there's this Messiah who's come to deliver and it's not really the Messiah, what do you think the Romans are going to do to these little Jews? They're going to take them out. They're going to be harsh with them. They're going to imprison them. Treat them unjustly, unfairly. The Jews were afraid of the Roman wrath. That's why they didn't want Jesus' reputation to grow. But it's because they were looking for this physical demonstration of conquering power and laying waste to the Romans. And not only them, but the entire world that opposed them. They were looking for pomp and prestige, for temporal victories and carnal glory. And if you were to ask the Romans, so that's the idea of a Jew of what the kingdom of God's supposed to be. If you were to ask the Romans what a kingdom was or what's a kingdom about, they would have told you that it was demonstrated in a matchless empire with these sculpted soldiers who were able to take out anyone who challenges them and make their enemies cower and quake. You see, that's exactly what the Roman Empire did. Have you ever heard in history of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace? This is the period in history when Rome declares peace over the entire known world. Except, do you know how they kept that peace? Through force of arms. They told everybody around, if you all don't get along, we're going to kill you. That's the kind of conquering power. That's the kingdom that they had in mind. And I can hardly think of a more needed message in the world at this present moment than that which Jesus proclaims here. These are the, the leading ideas of the day. Well, I'm telling you, the ideas of our day haven't changed all that much. The carnal emphasis, the temporal focus remains unto this day. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Now, how many of you heard him say that and immediately thought about Peter? Here he is being delivered over to the Jews. And it's one of his servants fighting. But Jesus says to him, no, no, that's not what we're about, Peter. That's not the nature of my kingdom that I'm building here. That's not the point. How many people today are constantly going astray in one direction or another because of a wrong understanding of what the kingdom of God actually is? Now, you can think about this from the lost person's perspective, the religiously lost person. They inevitably assume this, that the kingdom of God is pretty much whatever they wish their own kingdom to be. And when they pray, even if they say thy will be done, what they really mean is my will be done. You see, the kingdom that they're interested in is their own. Typically, my kingdom come. Now, here's the point. 
There are a lot of lost people alive today that have that exact mentality. And the moment you remember, we saw this somewhat in Peter a few weeks back, the moment when Peter begins to realize that the kingdom of God is not quite what I thought that it was. And all of a sudden his boldness, his confidence kind of begins to fall off a little bit. Well, a lot of people are that way today. As a matter of fact, I believe that's exactly what's going on with these religious Pharisees and Jews. They thought the kingdom of God was essentially their own kingdom, their own way to advance themselves, to take advantage of other people and build up themselves, lift themselves up. But that's not at all what the kingdom of God is about. How many people today, again, I say, have that same error about them. They think that for God's kingdom to advance means that they're going to prosper financially. They're going to do well physically. They're going to recover from illness. That's not the kingdom of God. That's not the focus of this kingdom. But it's not only those who are lost and unconverted who misunderstand this. But there are those who are genuinely Christians who have the same type of problem. Now, before I apply this today, I just want to show you this from John the Baptist and from the disciples, how they got this wrong. What is the kingdom of God? Matthew 11 verses 2 and 3 says this. Now, when John, this is John the Baptist. Now, when John was in, whenever John was in prison, excuse me, let's go back there and look at Matthew 11 for just a moment. Verses 2 and 3 of Matthew 11. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Now, consider this. John's in prison and he hears about the things Jesus is doing. And he starts to imagine Jesus might not be the Messiah after all. He seems to have considered Jesus. What is it the things that Jesus was doing? Well, if you go and you look, you'll see Jesus says, go tell them this, that the blind are receiving their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Now, Jesus is engaged in ministry with individual people. John the Baptist says, when are you going to come and do what you came to do? Isn't your kingdom about overthrowing these Romans and getting them out of here, establishing Jerusalem as this world power? Isn't that what the kingdom of God's about? Why are you piddling around, wasting your time on these individual people with their individual problems? Didn't understand the nature of the kingdom. And that again, coming from one that Jesus said there was no one greater than born of a woman. That's John the Baptist. Now flip forward to Acts chapter 1. So there's John misunderstanding the nature of the kingdom. Look with me at Acts chapter 1. And we see the rest of the disciples. Even after Jesus rose from the dead, they still have wrong ideas about the nature of this kingdom. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You hear that? The picture of this? Jesus risen from the dead. The disciples, He's about to ascend into heaven, and they ask Him, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They thought the kingdom was coming with observation in a physical realm in the nation of Israel and Jerusalem. This is where the kingdom is going to be right. 
Jesus says, it's not for you to know that. I'll tell you what your understanding of the kingdom needs to be. It's going to be having to do with receiving power and being my witnesses, sharing truth about me with people, individuals all over this world. That's the picture of his kingdom and his disciples, as well as John, as we saw, seem to be utterly confused about the kingdom of God. They thought it was some kind of a carnal display meant to be observed with physical dominance and a physical Israel. Jesus redirects their attention and immediately before his ascension, he reminds them of the primary mission which he had given them to do in service for the kingdom of God. And I believe today we have really a host of different wrong ideas But there are two primary misunderstandings that Christian people have related to the kingdom of God. Here they are. There are those who demand that the kingdom is to be realized through some sort of a geopolitical world domination and influence through politics, economics, and enforcing biblical law. There's the one misunderstanding. And the other, the other idea are those who demand that what ought to really get us going, what ought to really excite us, is this idea and hoping that we're going to see some power, geopolitical power in the Middle East, particularly in Israel, indicating the end of the world. Now, however, God brings these things to a close. The point is, that's not to be our focus. So even if my particular eschatological position is wrong, even if I'm wrong about what I think the scriptures reveal, I know good and well my focus is not supposed to be on those things. But Christ himself, Christ the King, He is to be the focus and the advance of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. That's the mission the church has been given. Jesus, when he said, my kingdom is not of this world, he made it pretty clear to us that his kingdom was not to be observed through physical nations. His kingdom is not dependent upon borders that men draw up. His rule and his reign are not limited by time or circumstance. I want to read something again from Matthew 28 in the context of the Great Commission to you. Consider what Jesus said. Verses 17 through 20. It says, And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold... I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I actually have heard someone who I believe is a brother in Christ. He loves the Lord, but he has a a, a very sharp focus on some reality that he imagines our, our job as Christians to go and take over essentially the government and the world through economics and politics. It's our job to enforce Christian morality in the nation. And he uses this verse in this way. He says, listen, Jesus, it says he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth. So he says, look, Jesus has authority on earth. That means we're supposed to go and press his authority in all the earth. I'm going to suggest to you, I believe that is a terrible mishandling of this scripture. What Jesus is saying to them, they're doubtful, they're scared. Jesus is saying all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He already has it. He doesn't need us to go and claim it for him. He already has it. In other words, Jesus says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He didn't say I'm with you always, but you got to go and make sure that the governments and powers around you are living in subjection to me. Otherwise, maybe I'm with you, maybe I'm not. 
He's encouraging them that as you go forth and you're hated and martyred for my name's sake, I have not left my throne. I'm still ruling and reigning no matter what happens to you. I have not given up my authority as the king, even though you may suffer as you go in my name. And so I ask, essentially what I've been focusing on up until now is to tell you what the kingdom is not. Now, let me ask, what is the nature of his kingdom? Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king for this purpose. I was born and for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Pilate here, he had initially asked Jesus if he was a king of the Jews. And here is what's incredible. In the last verse we just read, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate heard that part about my kingdom whenever he said that. So, yes, Jesus is king and he told him so. So Pilate responds by saying, so you are a king, then, huh? You just talked about your kingdom and the nature of your kingdom and what it's not. It's not of this world. So you do have a kingdom. That's what he's basically asking him. And he's basically putting it this way. So you fancy yourself a king and Jesus actually affirms the question. When Jesus says, you say that I am a king, he's not asking, he's not questioning, he's not leaving it open as if it wasn't true. It's pretty much as if Jesus is saying this. If you go and look at what that expression would have meant in that time, Jesus says what you've said is true. You've said it. You say that I'm a king. You've said the truth. That's what Jesus responds to him with when Pilate asks him again. So you are a king. then. The next part of 37, Jesus tells us for this purpose, I was born and for this purpose, I have come into the world. And so in response to this reality of him being a king, he's told us my kingdom's not of this world. So now he's about to tell us what his kingdom is of. For this purpose, I was born and for this purpose, I've come into the world. Jesus made it clear to us what his kingdom was not. It's not of this world. It's not according to human expectation. It's not according to observation. It's not according to combat, physical dominance, temporal wealth or carnal success. It can't be defined by anything that is of this world. What is it then? Jesus says, I'll tell you what my kingdom's about. The first thing you need to know is it's about me as the king, as the son of God. That's what Jesus says. What's the nature of his kingdom? It's centered on this for this purpose. This is the purpose of the kingdom of God. For this purpose, I was born and for this purpose, I've come into the world. What's he saying to us there? Jesus is telling us the purpose of Christ in building his kingdom is wrapped up in these two realities. First, he was born. He came into this world. He was born indicates to us that Jesus was truly man. He needs us to understand and know you want to know what my reason for coming my kingdom's about. It's about me being truly a man. And he follows that up with for this purpose, I have come into the world that he came into the world indicates that he existed before he was born, he was truly God. Here are the two essential truths about Jesus' kingdom. He's truly man. And he is truly God. Essentially, what he's saying is that the purpose of my kingdom is primarily having to do with me being both God and man. And the kingdom of God could not exist with men in it if Jesus had not come into the world as the God man. Everything about this kingdom is hinged upon this truth. 
For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Next thing he's going on to talk about is how he's come into the world, what he's come into the world doing. It says, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So stay with me. The first thing about Jesus kingdom that we need to be realizing here, it's not of this world. It's of another world. It's of the world that he came from and that he's returning to and that he's going to bring people with him as he enters back into it. Here's the point. It's not of this world. It's of another world, the kingdom of God, with him being the son of God. And the second revelation we're given concerning the nature of the kingdom of God is that it is realized by individual people coming to hear Jesus voice and believing the truth. Now, people want to argue. You'll hear this all the time. People want to argue about physical kingdoms, fleshly domains and carnal achievements. Jesus Christ is telling Pilate and telling us he came as the incarnate son of God in order to rescue souls of people by proclaiming truth to them. That's his interest. That's the nature of Jesus kingdom. It has to do with living souls that he would build a city not made with hands. That he would build this city that's going to last for all eternity and never, never be done away with, never be destroyed. I want to call your attention back to Daniel chapter 2 just for a moment. And think about this. Daniel chapter 2. There's all this talk about these kingdoms and one rising and falling and another and another. And what's the point in all of this? It's been strongly suggested and there's much... Many people much more intelligent than I am have suggested this. I challenge you to go and read it. But there's this description in verse 40 of this fourth kingdom, strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw, the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay, as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron is not mixed with clay. Do you know what that's describing in all likelihood? The Roman Empire. You look and you see the description of these kingdoms rising and falling that Daniel is interpreting and talking about. And here is this fourth kingdom and it's crushing every other kingdom. It's the world power. It's dominated everybody. And here even is this language about how it's mixed and it's got this. It's a divided kingdom. What does that mean? Well, perhaps it means that Rome went in and occupied other nations. That it wasn't one nation just to itself. That they would go in and occupy and live in and amongst and rule over these nations they'd conquered and ruled over. And then we read this. Verse 44. And in the day of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Pilate should have been a lot more worried than he was. Here, this kingdom, this kingdom that God is going to set up and establish. And did you catch this even in the beginning? That there is this, this kingdom that's, that's not made with hands. 
What does it say to us here? It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms, bringing them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Here's the picture. The Jews thought... Messiah is going to come and break all these nations physically with force of arms, with strength, with might, and make a physical nation, a physical kingdom. Jesus comes. You know Rome was destroyed, not by force of arms. From the inside out, and essentially what you see is you do see the influence of Christian gospel coming to so affect this people in years to come. Within 300 years, you have the entire nation being called or recognized as a Christian nation that didn't come by force of arms or strength of a nation. As a matter of fact, the moment that it's made into a nation, go listen to the history series we've been going through. The moment they they become a Christian nation, quote unquote, that's when things start getting really bad. Things start going downhill whenever they try to recognize this and not through the reality of God rescuing one soul at a time with the truth of the gospel. You see, the kingdoms of this world are built with elaborate buildings and strong walls and mighty militaries and complex, fallible political structures. But the kingdom of God Jesus is describing to us is a divine right monarchy with Jesus as king ruling in the hearts of his people. Did you notice this in our text in John 18, what Jesus says to us? Jesus says of this kingdom, Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He also has told us back in John 10 that his sheep hear his voice, that he knows us and we follow him. The purpose of this kingdom is rescuing his sheep by proclaiming the gospel, unstopping their deaf ears and delivering them into a kingdom which is not of this world. Consider it from 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter puts it this way, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, that stone that's cut out of the mountain. There's this cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now. You have received mercy. The nature of the kingdom being proclaimed. The nation being described by Peter here as a nation made up of living stones that are being built together to form this spiritual house. That's the nation of his concern. 
And we read much the same from the author to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11. Just listen to verses 8 through 16. This is the nature of Christ's, Christ's kingdom. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, is the kingdom that's made up of living stones called His people. His people, those who believe in Him. This is the nature of His kingdom. Pilate's talking about kingdoms. Jesus says, I've come to bear witness in everyone who hears my voice and loves me. That's my kingdom. Those are the ones I'm interested in. Not some fleshly, temporal realm. And Pilate responds in verse 38 and says to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Here we begin to see Pilate responding to this message of the kingdom of God, as well as the Jews response in the coming verses. They're going to do much the same. We're going to see the question today is, are you one that has heard the voice of the son of God? Have you heard him proclaiming truth to you? Are you interested in this kingdom, the one which has no end? The one which endures forever because it's founded on the king, the rock, the cornerstone. This kingdom. Is this the focus of your interest? You know. I feel like it would be right for us to at least look together at these last two verses, but in a little bit different way. I've said before you from Jesus' own mouth what His kingdom's not and what it is. And in these last two verses in our text, verses 39 and 40, we see after Pilate, we considered last week this relativism where he says, what is truth? He says, I find no guilt. Tries to get it off of his own shoulders. Give it back to the Jews to decide. After that, we see in verses 39 and 40 the responses of these people. Pilate brings up this custom to release one man at Passover. Again, he's not that ignorant of a guy. He knows better. He knows the customs of the Jews. He knows more than he was letting on whenever he initially responded in last week's message. But again, we move forward. He tries to pacify his own conscience by coming up with an alternative way to help him sleep at night, I suppose, by offering to release Jesus. But again, that will not make him innocent. You know, it's cowards that act according to the desperate cries of others. It's a cowardly person who listens to the voice of the mob rather than their own conviction in the truth. 
And the way they respond in verse 40, they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. The final thing we see is this crowd is fulfilling God's purpose in building his kingdom by refusing to let Jesus go and choosing rather a criminal. These proceedings that are before us that have taken place in these verses, though they're riddled with evil intent, they were not thwarting the kingdom of God. If the kingdom of God was what these people thought it was, surely the death of Jesus would have ended it. But the point of his kingdom is actually being fulfilled by it. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. We read of this. When they were released, Peter and John had been arrested and then threatened, and now they're released. When they had been released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. All of this unfolding according to God's predestined hand through the hands of wicked men. God planned and purposed Jesus would be rejected, that they would cry out for Barabbas instead of Jesus. What's the nature of this kingdom? What is the kingdom of God that's stirring your heart? What do you anticipate? What do you long for? Is it a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells in the presence of your God? According to Jesus, the kingdom that He came preaching has come. And we'll close with this thought. The final charge from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Here's the message. You want to know what the kingdom of God's about? It has to do with people repenting and believing the gospel. The kingdom of God is built, established as those who come to know and love him as they hear this message of their sin, of Jesus' death on the cross under the wrath of God for them. They say, I, I repent and I believe that message. That's the way this kingdom is advanced. And it's the only way. Every other attempt is a carnal failure. My encouragement to us is to look to our king. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is continuing to build this kingdom, who has saved our souls and delivered us from the condemnation that was against us. And trust Him and live, live in light of your King and what He said to you. So with that, I will ask you to bow with me and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, I thank You for Your Word. God, I pray that you will have been pleased to use one who is fallible. Oh, God, you are not. I pray that the truth would have lifted our gaze upon Jesus Christ, to gaze upon the Christ and him as our king, that he would be preeminent in our thoughts and we would take every thought captive to obey him.
Oh, Father, we praise you for the cross, for sending him to die and for the forgiveness and love that we know in him. Lord, I ask these things in Jesus name.